This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's show is being recorded live at the Sydney Simeon Network Annual Dinner. The Simeon Network is a national network of Christians in academia. Today's big question, how much has the Bible shaped Australia? We're asking this question today to Dr. Meredith Lake. Meredith is an honorary associate of the Department of History at the University of Sydney. Her PhD was on religious ideas of the environment in early colonial Australia, and she is the author of The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History, which won the 2018 Christian Book of the Year. And she joins me now. Please welcome Dr. Meredith Lake. Well, so congratulations on winning the 2018 Christian Book of the Year. You beat some fairly well-known Christian authors. How do you feel about winning? Uh, quite surprised, right, to, be, yeah, <laughs> to tell yeah. the truth. Uh, it, it's a history book, and I think history is wonderful, but it's not everyone's cup of tea, so I was really thrilled uh, that the judges decided that that's what we all needed, a bit more history. Right, congratulations. Um, but you, it won the Christ, Australian Christian Book of the Year, but it's not really a Christian book, though, would you say? Well, in lots of ways, it's not a Christian book. I don't assume that the reader is a person of any particular faith. It doesn't advocate for any particular view. In fact, um, quite deliberately agnostic on lots of big questions like whether the Bible's God's word or something like that in its cultural history. Right, yeah. Um, I've brought to the topic of the Bible and what Australians have thought about it, the arguments they've had over it, kind of the historian's toolkit um, to understand, yeah, how people have grappled with it and argued over it uh, and tried to do that in, in public and social ways as well as personal ways. And that's the kind of story I was trying to tell. So what inspired the book, though? I mean, I'm a historian of religion uh, in Australia, and I've always been interested in not just what makes people tick and how they see the world around them, but how they then act on that in ways that affect their neighbours and their wider communities. And I guess um, there's lots of ways of doing that. We can write about histories of churches, of Christian social movements, of Christian individuals, and that kind of thing is commonly done in the way historians have written about religion in Australia. Um, but once you start to put the Bible at the centre of the story, it, it's a fascinating lens because you get the story of the person who believes that it, it's God's word that uh, speaks and is active uh, and has some kind of divine authority next to the person who sees it as a great work of literature or somebody who thinks it's a load of claptrap. And all those responses um, can cohere, they can, they can exist on the same page, you can include them within the same narrative, the same story. And that diversity of voices, the diversity of opinions was something I found really compelling and mm. really fascinating. And once I started to think in that way, I was like, actually, you can get an alternative history of Australia by telling the story um, through this lens. Um, so as an historian, though, how did you research the book? Was it just a lot of, a lot of Google searches? You're asking for my secrets. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, just your method, method methodology. Sure. So. I mean, this, this book starts in the 18th century and comes right up to the present. Um, and historians normally don't deal with more than two centuries at once like that. Uh, so it is a book that uh, relies a lot on the scholarship of the people who've gone before me. So I did a lot of reading uh, of what other people have already researched. I did, I did use the internet, though not, not Google. There's a lot of wonderful <laughs> historical resources that you can access online. I delved into the archives at the places where I really couldn't help myself. Um, it's wonderful to go and actually look at the documents and read people's diaries and, you know, actually literally get your hands on old texts. Uh, so that was, that was part of the, the pleasure of the research too. But all, all those usual 
things that historians do, I, I tried everything. Terrific. Yeah. Well, it is an excellent book, so well done. Congratulations on the book. We'll be talking, obviously, about some of your research today. But to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking Dr. Meredith Lake about how much the Bible has shaped Australia. So, Meredith, our smaller questions to you are about the Bible in Australia. Now, your book, actually, is so comprehensive, though, I couldn't find anything except for your book. So today our smaller question is really is just about your book. Great. Um, so how do you feel about, so how well do you know your own book? Yeah, well, we'll see, won't we'll we? See. <laughs> That's right, okay. There's two questions, okay. both multiple choice. Question one, what is on page 280 of your book? Uh, <laughs> okay, is it, words? Is, it, okay, is it A, a blank page, B, a long list of footnotes, C, a photo of Sir Robert Menzies, or D, the introduction to section four, the Bible in a secular Australia? Uh, it'd have to be D. It's not, actually. I'm oh, sorry. no. Sorry. Really? It was it's close. Amen. That was the next page. That was, that's page 281. Uh, so, unfortunately, page 280 page. was actually a blank page. Uh, I'm sorry. It was slightly... <laughs> so it's a tough question. I'm it's, sorry. I'm, I'm I so, can still pass. I can still break I'm, even. I'm losing the audience here today, I'm afraid. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. We'll see how we go. I'm sure you'll pass. I'm sure you'll get the second one right. Okay. But you... I, I'm not sure. You haven't yet. You, haven't, you didn't memorise your... You haven't memorised your manuscript? No, no. No. Okay, fair enough. Uh, okay, question, question two. On page 28, you outline the story of Richard Johnson, the first chaplain who arrived with the first fleet, and with him the arrival of the first full Bible to Australia. How many full Bibles did he bring with him? Was it A, none, Johnson arrived, but his luggage went to Rio? Was it B, just one for his own personal use because the Bible is a private book? Was it C, 100, he was keen to engage the Bible with the convicts? Was it D, 10,000, someone at the Bible Society got his order wrong and he overordered for the fledgling colony. So how many full Bibles did Richard Johnson bring with him? Well, I think it was E, oh. his own, plus 100. Oh, okay. Uh, 101, I suspect. Well, that's, the, not, that's not one of the options we have here. Uh, well, <laughs> let's round it to the nearest 100, say. Yeah. Let's go for C for uh, That's 100. a great one to go with. Yes, that's correct. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not. Do I pass? <laughs> you do. <laughs> So, do you remember what he brought with him, what his full manifesto was? No, not off. I don't okay. have his whole luggage list. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. We brought <laughs> there were a lot of books. 100 full Bibles, 400 New Testaments, and various other publications. And, Meredith, I can see why you're an award winning author. For you, past, you got one of our two smaller questions right. Big round of applause. <laughs> so, Meredith, the story of the Bible in Australia begins with the arrival of the first fleet in 1788. So, tell us a bit more about your research. How did the, the Bible shape Australia's colonial history? In all kinds of fascinating ways. And when we say the Bible arrived in, in, with the British colonists, uh, the first hard copies that we know about that were yeah. unloaded here certainly came on the first fleet in the luggage of the chaplain, Richard Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was his... Uh, Cook had a Bible on board the Endeavour, which actually is still in um, Australia. It's at the State Library of New South Wales. I went and had a look at it. Doesn't look very well read. Uh, <laughs> okay, right. Unlike yeah. Johnson's Bible, which is a mess from clear and long use. Yeah. Europeans had been reading the Bible and thinking about the world beyond their own backyard for centuries. Uh, so the way Europeans even imagined what was beyond the known world to them uh, had been shaped by the Bible for hundreds of years before they learned about the existence of the continent we now call Australia. Yeah. But when so, it, so when what it ways came specifically. Uh, so could, when Augustine, for example, in the 5th century is thinking about, are there antipodes? Is there another side of the world where people walk upside down 
you know, no, there can't be because Adam couldn't, a descendant of Adam couldn't have sailed mm -hmm. that far. And this, this is, you know, the discussion in the fifth century about what the part of the world we now live in. Yep. Um, so the European imagination had a biblical inflection for hundreds of years before Europeans actually showed up here. Yep. And when they did, though, they brought the Bible as a book, as John, in Johnson's luggage, uh, but they also brought a set of ideas, um, even just the, the, a printed text that's a codex. Uh, the object of the book reflects the history of the printing of Bibles in Europe over hundreds of years. So any book really is part of the baggage of the Bible in Europe that's, yeah. that's, trans, that's transmitted here. Uh, I don't know about on the first fleet, but certainly on sub subsequent fleets, there were convicts with biblical tattoos. There was one convict, George Dakin, had um, fools mock at sin as a tat on his body. Uh, another guy, Joseph Lamb, was a bit more, had a warmer verse. He had a verse from the Psalms, love God for he is good to all. Um, people had crucifixes, scenes from the Garden of Eden. It was kind of the Bible was part of the visual iconography, if you like, of popular culture at the time. So it's, it's there in the language they speak, the phrases they're using. The governor lectures the convicts on, you know, he who doesn't work won't eat with a verse from Thessalonians to try and set up an orderly settlement. Um, it's, it's embedded in virtually everything mm. they think mm. and do, whether that's from a position of faith or scepticism. There were men of the Enlightenment on that, on that fleet um, who still talked about New South Wales as an Eden, convicts who still talked about it as a site of banishment. Those narratives from the, from the, from the Bible were, were yeah. part of the way they imagined the world uh, and what they thought it meant to, uh, to, to be here. Mm. So you've unpacked, obviously, a number of different elements of which how the Bible was understood. So, for example, we go to the convicts, and there was, so it was a bit like Facebook of the, of the, ancient, of the, the Victorian era, was it? Or, or that sort of, were these tattoos imposed on them when they were sent to the colonies? Well, kind of both. The reason we know about their tattoos is because there were no mug shots then, so to describe someone. So it is about surveillance, the surveillance of the convict's body. You write, you know, height, hair colour, eye colour, any physical markings, including tattoos. So it is, we only know about their biblical tattoos because the state was controlling them right, uh, yeah. and imprisoning them and transporting them and doing those things. Uh, but I don't know of any examples of forced tattooing. Right. Um, but this is a time when... Um, members of the working class were kind of semi-literate and the evangelical movement in Britain is kind of going gangbusters. So how do you communicate the scriptures to semi-literate people? Well, you do it in really visual ways. There were pictorial Bibles that were basically um, really common knowledge, really commonly available, and they were like the tattooist's handbook. Mm. Um, it makes sense, really, that, that it turns up in the mm. physical tattoos that people had. So the arrival, obviously, of the first fleet and Europeans into Australia does raise questions about the interaction with Australia's Indigenous peoples. So what was the Indigenous experiences of the Bible? Well, experience is a great word because it's really diverse. One of my favourite stories, actually, is about uh, the first chaplain, Richard Johnson, and his wife, Mary. They lived for 18 months, actually, with an Eora teenager called Buron, uh, who was brought into the camp suffering from smallpox and whether she was a free resident of their house or not is debatable. She may have been coerced, though she wasn't physically restrained there. But she lived with the Johnsons for about 18 months and must have seen Johnson reading the Bible, probably reading it with his wife, um, taking it out with him to work, to visit convicts in their huts, preaching from it on Sundays. We know that several young Eora people went along and watched him at work and mimicked him afterwards. And this, this, the whole technology of the book, of writing, of paper, um, let alone he talks about trying to instruct her regarding a supreme being, in his words, trying to convey the theology that he brought with him as well, his understanding of the Bible. Buron 
encounters all of that along with everything else that the Europeans were bringing with them mm. uh, and has a really good close look. We don't have her voice in any of the sources. We don't know uh, what, she, what her take was on any of that. Um, but after about 18 months, she returns, she rejects the, the camp life and returns to, well, the surviving um, Eora communities around Sydney, marries Benelong, uh, the famous Benelong, after whom Benelong Point that the Opera House is on is named. Um, and they have a son whose name is Dickie Benelong. Uh, and he, he grows up in a really different kind of world. Um, his traditional options have been undercut, destroyed, basically, by European presence. And he converts to Christianity um, mm -hmm. through a Wesleyan missionary and is probably the first baptised Aboriginal person in Australia and becomes an evangelist among his own people. So he has a really different response to his mother, mm. to the Bible and its message as he understands it. Um, and that happens in the space of one generation. Mm. And I think just from there onwards, that's, that spectrum from this is not for me, this is not... Part, something I can accept as part of the complete disruption of my society and yeah. culture and world through to, no, this is something I will accept and something that I'm going to interpret and share with my brethren. That, <laughs> that, that, that spectrum, yeah, yeah has, has been there ever since. Indigenous Australians made really diverse responses. But the question of the Bible being wrapped up with the story of European colonisation has never gone away. That's always yeah. there. Well, there's a verse in the Bible, Acts 17.26, which says, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So how significant was this in engaging Indigenous issues? That's a really important verse uh, for two reasons. One, the idea of one blood, that, that of common humanity, of it's not about race, it's not about ethnicity or language or tribe or culture, whatever, that, that, that there's a common humanity um, because of the way God created all people. That, that idea has been incredibly powerful in terms of affirming the equality of uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, black and white, male and female. And that, that's been very powerful in the hands of Indigenous people, mm -hmm. especially at a time in the 19th century when kind of scientific racism is, is kind of winning the day, the idea that there's a, you know, a hierarchy of races and some are more evolved than others. It was a grounds for pushing back against that. And so there were non-Indigenous missionaries who persisted in their hope for an Indigenous future against virtually, you know, most other sections of colonial society because of a verse like that with enormous courage. But an Indigenous Christians, in understanding that verse, have, are continuing to argue, even now, for the recognition of their full humanity and their, their entitlement to justice like anybody else. Mm. So that kind of verse has had enormous potency. Mm. But also on land, that the idea that God gives the land marks out where people will live. Who are the stewards of this country? Um, how can they steward land that has been stolen? All mm. these kinds of questions, the politics, we can feel them even now. The Bible's informed all of that. Now, you also mentioned in your book that the term Bible bashers yeah. actually originated in Australia. So can you can tell us, how did, how did that happen? You know, one of the, the rich contributions of Australians. <laughs> to, uh, to world to, culture. To, to English, <laughs> that's right. And not only that, uh, other slang that is not in such use anymore that maybe we should think about bringing back, uh, it, was a, it was slang for a clergyman. Sorry if there are any clergymen listening or watching today. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, but a Bible basher or a sky pilot, a devil dodger. Um, an amen snorter, I think. Um, <laughs> there's another one. But anyway, these, these terms come from 
the, the turn of the century moment around their first listed in the Bulletin magazine in 1901, uh, which was a, a really exciting time in Australian cultural history. There were kind of unionists clamouring for rights for workers, uh, suffragists uh, demanding votes for women, um, all, all, you know, federationists kind of getting all excited about, about that, um, wowsers, Bible bashes, like there's this kind of contest going on about what kind of society is this going to be, what kind of moral code is going to govern its common life. Mm. Uh, and the idea of the kind of the moralizing, wowsery kind of straight and narrow types um, really, really provoked um, people on the other end of the spectrum. And that's where the language comes from. It's a derisive, obviously, a, yeah. a Bible basher. Um, but I think it's wonderfully evocative. And I think, what does it mean for how people think about the Bible? Is, there, is, is Australia somehow an authentically anti-Bible culture? I mean, for me, it raises these kinds of questions. I think, I think it's more complicated than that. But it's at least an anti-clerical culture to a significant degree. Anti-clerical as it against anti-kind of church leadership yeah, sort of culture. Church, church authority is a bit on the nose, and it has been for a long time. So that raises a question. So do you think then Australia is a secular nation where religion is in the public space is somehow sort of illegitimate, or is Australia a Christian nation that has been declining from its Christian heritage? Well, I think those are the two myths. Yes. Uh, and they're very familiar, and they're both um, inadequate, I would, I would argue. And in fact, that's what the whole book is about. It's like, they're, they're lovely, they're comforting myths for the people who believe them, but the story is actually more interesting mm -hmm. and more complicated than that. That's why people um, need to buy your book. Oh, all the <laughs> time. Right. And, and read it cover to cover. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but the idea, well, when convicts come with biblical tattoos, is, is the convict period a godless period? It, it, the stories are, are kind of more surprising than that. Yeah. I think it's hard to maintain... Like, Twice as many convicts went to church voluntarily in the 1790s as Australians go to church now. They're twice as religious or observant about church going than, than today. Like, is that a godless past or is it a... I, I just don't think those myths hold up just on the, the, the story of convict religiosity. Yeah. Uh, but whether it's a Christian nation, or well, I would argue probably not there either. Um, you've got the men of the Enlightenment among the officers. You've got... Um, indigenous Australians who are making complicated responses to the Bible. The convicts, they may have, some of them may have shown up to church and got a biblical tat, but their moral lives never impressed the clergy. Yeah. Um, they were never up to scratch from the clergy's point of view there. I think the Bible's always been contested, and so there's no simple Christian past either. Mm. Um, but the argument about these things, the big questions, um, the bigger questions... That's what we're asking them today. Say, <laughs> I'm like, there's a hook here, isn't there? Uh, <laughs> That's been going on for a long time, and I think that's fast. It's part of the dynamic of Australian culture to have have a good old argument about this stuff. Yeah. Now you said that the you that the Bible gets under Australians' skin. What do you mean by that? The Bible, if I can put it this way, then the story of people going to church or opting into reading it in private at home. Um, there's something the way it's diffused through our cultural life, our social life. That means that even if you're not someone who picks up the Bible for themselves, its imprint uh, is surprisingly present, uh, whether it's in the mm. music of Nick Cave or the Australian Jesus character of Reg Mombasa, the Mambo artist, or the reportage around um, a Pentecostal prime minister or an issue like people seeking asylum in Australia. Whatever it might be, we hear ideas and phrases even from the Bible uh, very widely um, far beyond the life of faith. 
Hmm. Now, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the author says in chapter 4, verse 24, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Uh, now, you say on page 12 of your book that in theological terms, the Bible's sacred character may be the only real basis for its significance to Australia. So what do you mean by that? I guess what I, I've come to this story as a historian, which is a certain toolkit that you can use for looking at the world around you and trying to make sense of it. But I wanted to be open up front that that's not the only way uh, we can understand the world. And I didn't want to shut down those other ways by approaching it the way I did. I think often part of the problem with the arguments we have in public and in our political life is that we don't acknowledge the limits of our own perspectives. Um, and history, even history, as wonderful a discipline it is, doesn't get you everywhere you need to go. Um, and I think I needed to acknowledge that for some people, the Bible is the way God speaks to them. That's how they understand it. They receive it in that way. Can a historian adjudicate on whether that's true or not? Some will, some won't. Um, but I wanted to be open about the fact that, that that happens for people and whether or not you think people are right to receive the Bible in that way. It's very powerful in what they then do as a result of their reading, the way people try to bend their lives to what they take to be the Bible's meaning. is It's why it's the Bible that matters, not, say, Shakespeare. I mean, lots of people have to read Shakespeare at school. Mm -hmm. Everyone's grandma's got Shakespeare on their shelf, you know, give or take. Like, it's, it's a very ubiquitous text, the plays of Shakespeare, but it's had nothing like the influence of the Bible because people don't, you know, don't try and live like Prospero or, you know, act out like Hamlet. They don't. Whereas people do try and act out like Jesus, whatever they take his teaching mm. to mean. And that, that um, submission, I think, is probably the word, or that, that act of adopting... Trust. Yeah, trust, reliance. faith. Yeah. Those, that kind of posture towards the word of Scripture as, it, as it's in, understood by the person reading it, or the community that's, that's doing this together. It's a corporate thing often. That's why it's such a potent... That explains its potency in lots of ways. Whether people are right to do that or not, I mean, that, that's a huge question. Mm, a <laughs> and bigger I, one, perhaps. A, yeah. a bigger, even bigger <laughs> one than we can answer now. Um, but I wanted to acknowledge that that's what's going on for a significant minority, even today in Australia, mm. and probably for a majority at certain points mm. in recent Australian history. So this idea that the, the Word of God is active and alive is actually a genuine experience for many people uh, that you've documented in your book. A, com a common one, I would say, that, that that's... People have talked about their experience of reading the Bible in that kind of language. And that's part of the... I don't think it's an inauthentic or weird or somehow strange experience. I think the historical record uh, is remarkably articulate on, on the prevalence of that kind of thing. And particularly among women, actually. I think women have been the custodians of this kind of devotional Bible, this living word, if you like, um, far more commonly than we realise um, in Australian history. Mm -hmm. So do you think the Bible still has power even when used by people who don't, don't necessarily believe it? They use it for uh, different motives? Absolutely. And I think there are examples of where that's been... Like, anybody can use the Bible in ways that are profoundly harmful as well as in ways that are enlarging and that support the flourishing of other people. So as a harmful example, there are people I read about um, squatters in the 19th century who basically tried to appeal to that verse in Genesis about filling the earth and subduing it to say, well, Aboriginal people didn't really own the land and so basically we, we can steal it and that's fine. 
and to justify a very, very violent colonisation of Victoria. Like 80% of Indigenous Australians are wiped out within 17 years of Europeans arriving in Victoria. Like it is horrific. And people are literally quoting the Bible to kind of bolster their moral credentials in doing that. Like, it's a horrific story. Yeah. Whether um, theologic, those readings have integrity, mm-hmm. that's part of the argument that we need to have. That's part of why we need Bible literacy now, to have that argument well. But at the same time, people, like creative people, like there are novelists, painters, cartoonists, political activists who have responded to the Bible as a work of literature... Uh, its language, the vision it casts of, a, of something larger than themselves and their own interests, that the way the Bible and reading it has cast people's imaginations forward. So Louisa Lawson, the suffragist, who was um, a Methodist upbringing and became a spiritualist, uh, ran one of the most important feminist newspapers in turn-of-the-century Australia. Her son, Henry Lawson, was a famous poet, and she was one of the main advocates of Votes for Women in New South Wales. She talked about kind of a new heaven and a new earth, which is a repeated biblical phrase. Yeah. As, as that, she, she longed for nothing short of that in, in, in a, a safer homes for women and full mm. civic participation. Mm. And she used the language of the Bible to do that, even if she didn't understand it mm. uh, in the way that the local preacher might have. So in some ways, a Christian vision of the world shaped the way that she conducted herself here in some, in some sense. The way... The way some engagement, deep grappling with the Bible sometimes can, yeah, in, feed into a kind of altruism, a kind of dynamic that goes beyond self-interest. I think that, I don't think that's confined to the life of faith. I think that's been an experience of even people who've, who've left traditional Christianity behind. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about how the Bible's shaped Australia, how it's shaped some notable Australians, but what about you? Has it shaped you at all? I can't put my finger on precisely how, but it's a book, yeah, sure, I've journeyed with it most of my life, and it surprises me, it challenges me. I don't know quite what to make of it a lot of the time, but it has always rewarded attentiveness. When I've bothered to engage with it, even just as a text, as a story, like reading Ruth as a short story or something, apart from anything else, like, that has never disappointed me. Although there are things that I just don't know what to do with. I don't think it's an easy text mm. um, to make sense of all the time, but it's certainly a rewarding and surprising, and I think often confronting one. Mm. So has your research changed your view of the Bible? Perhaps not of the Bible, but it's certainly of what it might mean to read it. Um, I don't know the answers. I, I guess I'm, all I'm trying to do is made me ask better questions um, and try and listen better to people who think differently to me, because often there's a word there um, that I need to hear. So, Meredith, how much has the Bible shaped Australia? I think it's a huge story, and it's not, it doesn't fit in our boxes. Um, and I think it's the kind of question that it's actually a great question for us to be talking about, because how can we navigate a complicated world uh, if we don't know the conversation we've become part of? It, it's a sleeping giant, but not in a simple way, and not just because of the tats. <laughs> Well, let me leave you with the Bible's reflections on the big question. How much has the Bible shaped Australia from Hebrews 4.12? For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Dr. Meredith Lake. Thank you.
Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.